This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Morning. We're going to begin our Advent series this morning in Isaiah chapter 40, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 40. And if you open your Bibles to the middle, most of you, you'll probably land in Isaiah or close to it. And our Advent series this year, um, several months ago, Carrie Brain asked me if we had ever done or followed the liturgical calendar for an Advent series, and I thought, I don't think we had, so that's what we're going to do this year, is just follow the, liturg- the church liturgical calendar, which simply means that like this Sunday, each Sunday is going to have a theme. So this Sunday, the theme is hope, next Sunday, the theme is, the theme is peace, uh, then joy, and then finally love, but... The reason I tell you that is because I want to show you how our God works. As many of you know, the last several days have been really rough on Shannon and I. I'm not going to broadcast all the details to the world, but suffice it to say that uh, it's been one of those times where At the end of the day, you find yourself exhausted even though you really haven't done anything just because the heartache and the anxiety has has worn so heavily on you. I know many of you know what I'm talking about because I know you are reading a different chapter in the same book. It's that really thick book about pain and suffering and grief and heartache Back to our Advent series. So several months ago, Carrie asked me, suggested that we go through the liturgical calendar. But because this week's been so difficult, I hadn't even looked at our passage until Thursday morning. So here's how our God works. With frayed nerves and a heavy heart, I finally sat down on Thursday morning. I cracked God's word. And what was the first thing I read? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And as I kept reading, I realized something. Brothers and sisters, this is who our God is. I realized that months in advance, our God knew I needed to hear from Him in Isaiah chapter 40 this week. He worked it all out. I say that to say this morning, if you find yourself with a heavy heart, If you find yourself in the midst of grief, pain, trial, then I want you to know that your God has done the same thing for you as He has done for me. He knew months in advance that this morning you needed to hear from Him in the book of Isaiah in chapter 40. And so this morning, that's what I want you to see. This morning, I want to convince you that you too can have hope. I want to convince you that you too can have hope. In fact, Isaiah chapter 40 was written to people who desperately needed it. You see, Isaiah chapter 40 is the beginning of a major shift that God makes in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is speaking to the people of his own time. 
warning them about their sin and their rebellion and that it's going to have consequences. And history tells us we know they didn't listen because they soon found themselves in exile in Babylon. So again, knowing that this would happen, in Isaiah chapter 40, God turns His focus from, from those of Isaiah's day to those who would be in exile. And he, and he instructs Isaiah to tell them, there's a reason you can have hope. And what exactly was it they could hope for? Well, look at, at, at Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 3. Isaiah writes, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cries, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So here at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 40, he hears two voices, basically. He hears two voices. In verse 3, a voice cried out, and, and it's telling Isaiah to tell these people, you can, you can hope, my people. You can be comforted, my people. Because, listen, he says in verse 3, the Lord is coming. You can have hope because he says the Lord is coming to lift up the valleys and smooth out the rough places. In other words, the first thing that Isaiah is supposed to instruct these exiles and the first thing that we hear him say to us is we, like Judah, have a reason, have a, have a, have a way to hope because God has promised us, too, that He's coming to fix everything. We can hope because God is coming to fix everything. That's what He's promised. That, that's what He's saying in a poetic way, if you will, in verses 3 through 5. When He talks about valleys and mountains and wilderness and all that sort of stuff, what he's saying is, is that, that he's going to fix everything in a poetic way. He's going to lift up the valleys and smooth out the uneven ground. And, and he says anybody who's denied him at the, at the end there in verse 5, anybody who's denied him or persecuted his people, they're going to be proven wrong when, when standing side by side with God's people, God reveals his glory to everyone. Do you need to hear that this morning? Do you need to be reminded that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, voluntarily or involuntarily? I mean, think about how comforting that would have been to those people who are living under the thumb of Babylon. That these, these massive world leaders were one day going to see the, the glory of God was standing right next to them and, and they were going to be proved who was right and who was wrong. We still have that hope. We still have that hope. Hope that one day God's going to bring justice to corrupt leaders. That this life is not the end. 
hope that evil and wickedness will one day cower before the burning light of God's glory. But maybe that's not what you need to hear. Maybe this morning you need to hear something different. Maybe you need to hear that the Lord has promised to one day wipe away every tear from your eye. That the Lord has promised to one day turn the the barren wilderness of your heartache and grief into a fertile plain of permanent joy and laughter and peace. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. Or maybe you need to hear that the Lord has promised to take that valley of death that you're walking through, the valley of fear and anxiety and pain, and He's going to lift it up to everlasting life. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. Because God's telling you, you have a reason to hope. You have a reason to hope because the Lord has promised to come and fix everything. And the end of verse 5, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Don't read past that too, too quickly. Because when the mouth of the Lord speaks, universe is coming to existence. This is not a hope, wish, maybe it'll happen. It's going to happen. Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the, that's the first voice. And, and why did he promise to do that? Why is he going to give them this hope? Why do they need this hope? Well, because in verse 6, the second voice cries out to say to the people, the Lord is coming to fix everything. Because, verses 6 through 8, you are powerless to do it on your own. He's coming to fix everything in verses 3 through 5 because verses 6 through 8, you can't. That's that's what Judah would eventually figure out when they went into exile. They thought they could defend themselves. I mean, they lived in Jerusalem, for goodness sake. It was like one of the best defended cities in the entire world for thousands of years. They thought between the right geopolitical alliances and the thickness of their walls. They thought they could fend off everyone. That is until Babylon rolled up, the the, the largest nation and, and baddest military, not only the Jews, but the world had ever seen. So to those people, to, to people who had figured out the hard way, they were far more powerless than they thought. Isaiah says, I got something you need to hear. I wonder if you've figured that out yet. I wonder if you have figured out how powerless you really are. Have you figured out yet there are certain things you can't fix? Have you figured out yet that there are people in relationships you can't fix? Have you realized there are health issues that the best doctors can't heal? Have you you figured out that there are heartaches that cannot be soothed? There's something even more important, I wonder, if you've figured out yet. You see, too often we think our need for hope. Too often we think the reason that we need hope is because there's something or someone outside of us that's causing a bunch of problems when the truth is this. Listen, the reason we need hope is because we're living in a broken world that we've been instrumental in breaking. The reason our hope fails is because we've played right along in breaking the world that's breaking us. 
It's a world we're powerless to fix because the only thing we're truly good at is ruining it. What I'm trying to say is, have you figured out yet that you're just as powerless to fix yourself as you are other people? Because I think that can be one of the hardest places to be. You, you recognize at one point in your life that you can't fix people around you, and, and that, that can be a tough place. But then you realize, wait a minute, there's a common denominator in all my problems. And I can't fix that either. But once you get there, once you get to the point where you realize that you need help to fix yourself more than other people, that's when this passage really starts to give you hope. Because even though we're really good at breaking things, listen, not Jesus. No, he's really good at fixing things. Which is why we can have hope that God will keep his promise to fix everything. Because he already took care of the worst part when he sent Jesus Christ. Listen, just like Isaiah promised back in in verse 3, John the Baptist made straight the path of hearts in the wilderness. He made the hearts straight, preparing for the Lord when Jesus came to lift up the valleys and level out the uneven ground. But here's the thing. He didn't just come to fix our lives. Like with divine duct tape and super glue. These aren't hand-me-down lives with patches on the knees. No, these are new lives. See, Jesus just started over and did it right. For 33 years, He lived the way we were supposed to live. He lived perfectly the lives that we have ruined. And then, get this, He he offers the credit for that perfect life He lived. He offers the credit for it to anyone. Anyone. In exchange for the life they've ruined. You give Him your ruined life, He gives you your perfect life, and all just because you believe you need Him to. That's it. That's what He's done. In other words, brothers and sisters, you can have hope this morning because the Lord has promised to fix what you can't. And he did that in Jesus Christ. And Isaiah says again at the end of verse 8, even though we are withering flowers, the word of our God will stand forever. Meaning that fix that God is doing That fix that He has done, it never ends. His Word stands forever. Unlike us, His Word stands forever. Let's take a step back, though. How can He do that? How can God promise to fix these kinds of things? Because I don't know about you, but I sure don't feel like I'm fixable much less other things. I mean, I'd love to have that hope, but how can God fix things that are so broken, like eternally broken, permanently broken? I mean, think about it. How can God fix that hatred that I have between that that other person that's been going on for years, much less the hatred in the Middle East that's been going on for millennia? How can God fix that? How can God fix things like death that comes for us all, much less the death that comes when it's not supposed to? 
How can he do that? How can he fix things like corruption and oppression and injustice? You ever feel like that? Like, like your hopelessness is too systemic? It's, it's too big? It's too established? Well, brothers and sisters, again, God knew we would ask that question. Which is why in this particular chapter of Isaiah, where he's giving us a reason to hope, he made sure to remind us that we can have hope that our God is going to fix everything because, listen, because he's powerful enough to do it. Because he's powerful enough to do it. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon wouldn't suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now, now we don't have time to dig into all the details here, but what Isaiah is doing is he gives us basically two contrasts with an exclamation point at the end, which are all marked out by the, the, the questions of who or whom. Look again at the first contrast. It begins in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? It's, it's, this, it's this idea in verses 12 through 14 where Isaiah is describing how big God is compared to, to the biggest nations in the world. Again, imagine how comforting that would be to people in captivity in Babylon. Like, like in verse 12, it says God has, has all the water in the entire world. It's saying God has measured it in the cup of his hand. And, and, and compare that to all, com compared to all the armies of all the kingdoms of, of all the nations, they're just a drop in the bucket. Like, like no matter what side of the aisle you're on, all the corrupt, fraudulent, 
war profiteering leaders in our government, they are nothing, nothing compared to our God. A drop in a bucket, dust on a box, and they're gone. Brothers and sisters, put your hope in God because He's powerful enough to fix what we can't. I mean, look again at the next contrast in verse 18. He starts off again with that, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare Him with, an idol? I mean, to whom will you compare God, an idol? Give me a break, Isaiah says in the, in the following verses. That's stupid. Verse 19, man does the best he can to make his idols look pretty. Verse 22 says the whole earth is like a speck of dust on the pendant around God's neck. And an idol? Yeah, right. Man has to be careful to prop it up so it doesn't tip over. But God, verse 21, says the earth is set on the foundations he laid. And verse 24, it, it's saying something like this. Do you remember that amazing grain harvest in the fall of 1729 B.C.? You remember that one? Or, or maybe not. Maybe Do you remember that really really big barley harvest in the spring of like 1350 A.D.? Do you remember that? Of course not. It's a silly question. Isaiah is saying that's what man is like compared to God. We, man thinks we are so tough. We think we're so important. We think we have so much value and influence and, 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 and authority. And, and, and God is saying a, a few years blow by and is gone. Nothing. Forgotten. Compared to God, the most powerful men on earth are like chaff. It's blown away by the wind and forgotten. Listen, you can have hope that God is going to fix everything because He's powerful enough to do it. And to put an exclamation point on this whole thing, Isaiah says in verse 25 again, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So think about it this way. On the darkest night, with the clearest sky, you might be able to see one other galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy. You might be able to see that, but probably not. So most of the time, The, the, the sea of stars that we see on a dark night are, are only those contained in our Milky Way. That's it. However, there are two trillion other galaxies in the known universe at this time. Meaning, listen to what Isaiah is saying here. When you look up at night and you see this massive sea of sparkling lights, you are looking at one half of one trillionth of what God has created until we create a better telescope and that number grows. Yet Isaiah says in verse 22 that with all of that, like you and I doing the mundane chore of making the bed, God flung that universe into existence like spreading a bed sheet. 
and obediently, trillions of galaxies leapt into existence. Listen, do you need some hope this morning? Do you feel overwhelmed? Do you feel like something's too big for you to handle? Do you feel like there's no way something can get fixed? Well, look at it this way. You and I can scream at the top of our lungs, and our own kids will ignore us. God clears his throat, and universes turn their heads. You can have hope because God has promised to fix everything, and he's powerful enough to do it. But here's the thing. If we're honest with ourselves, in, in, in those times when, when we feel the need for hope, when we feel hopeless, when you find yourself feeling defeated and lost and overrun and overwhelmed, isn't that when you feel the most alone? Like, doesn't insignificance feel like a shadow to hopelessness? Like it follows it around. When you feel hopeless, you feel insignificant. It brings up the question, a God who, who set the universe in motion, he, that's cool and all. I mean, I like to think of that bigness of God, but does a God that big even know, much less care about what I'm going through? Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is is unsearchable. In other words, listen, saints, not only can you have hope because your God is powerful enough to fix everything that you can't, but you can have hope because that God, that, that problem-fixing, universe-creating God, He sees you. And I don't mean He sees people like you. He doesn't see groups of people like you. No, I'm saying He sees you sitting in that chair right there, needing and hurting and wanting and grieving. He sees the pain you're experiencing and He wants to comfort you. He sees the grief you're enduring and He wants to reassure you. He sees the pain and the loss and the heartache that's, that's pulling your countenance downward and He wants to raise it up which is why we cry out, if we're honest with ourselves, when we hear about how big God is and that He sees us, it's when we cry out, then why hasn't He done it yet? Why am I still feeling these things? Why, why am I still enduring this pain and this heartache and this anxiety? If He's promised to fix it, and if He's powerful enough to do it, and if He sees me, then why hasn't He fixed it yet? Well, friend, 
the simple truth is because he's not done yet. The reason God hasn't fixed everything yet is because he's not done yet. Listen, there's, there's more people he wants to hear there's hope. There are more people he wants to hear that there is hope for their pain and suffering and hopelessness. There are more people he wants to know they're not alone. There are more people like, like you who he wants to hear about his salvation before he fixes everything. There are more people who he wants to hear about the hope of Jesus paying for their sins before he does away with this world of pain and suffering and, and walks with us into the new heavens and the new earth. That's why he hasn't fixed things yet. Well, that's great, Grant, but I thought you said I could have hope now. So what gives? What about until then? What about until he fixes everything? Do I just languish in this hopelessness knowing that someday it'll, it'll get fixed? Well, the short answer is no, but look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In other words, brothers and sisters, you and I have a hope that this world does not. We, we have a hope that, that as hard as, as this world works, as badly as this world wants it, as hard as it tries, it cannot lay hold of the hope that you and I have. You see, we have a hope that's so powerful, it isn't found in the absence of pain and trials and heartache. It's found in the midst of it. How's that? Well, when you feel hopeless, when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel like you can't go on, when you feel like your hope is thin, when you feel weak and weary, when you wonder if God is truly strong enough to fix what He says He would fix, when you feel all of that and then you still feel like you need more hope. Brothers and sisters, at that point, all we need do is look to the other time in history when things seemed even more hopeless. Look to Judas hanging from a rope. Look to Mary weeping in the garden. Look to the disciples running, scared for their lives, hiding in their homes. And then Cedar Springs Church, look to the empty grave. Look to the stone that was rolled away from the inside. And see your risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Look there. Because when you do, when, when you look to your Savior who has risen from the dead, you will find the hope you so desperately need the hope to wait on the Lord. When you feel hopeless, look to the empty tomb. It is the most hopeful thing this world has. Hope that will renew your strength in the midst of weakness, not in the absence of it. It's hope that will mount you on eagle's wings 
in the valley, not out of it. Hope not only to walk through the grief and the sorrow and the pain you're, you're in and not grow faint, but hope to run the race that God has marked out for you and not grow weary. Brothers and sisters, you can have hope that God is strong enough to fix everything because Jesus Christ already conquered the grave. Which means this. You can have hope that as He said, He will never leave you or forsake you. You can have hope that He works all things for the good of those who love Him. Because again, verse 31, because those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. The last question I have then is, so what do we do? Until then... What do we do while we wait on the Lord with this renewed hope? Well, if you notice, we skipped a section. If you go back to verse 9, here's what we do while we wait with renewed hope. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Go and tell the world about the hope that you have in the King of Kings and the Good Shepherd. Go and tell the world about the hope that you have in Jesus Christ.